Hey everyone, a quick note before we start today's episode, I want to point you to our brand new website at guiltgracepod.com for all things guilt, grace, gratitude, all of our podcasts, their categories by type, by episode, by season, by author, by topics, by all those good things. So everything guilt, grace, gratitude podcast you can find at guiltgracepod.com. Dot com, as well as our brand new confessional podcast network, which will be housed at confessionalpods.com. We have our inaugural sets of podcasts who have joined us, and we have more who are coming on board pretty soon. And you can also find the confessional podcast network on anywhere good podcasts are found. If you guys can help us in any way financially, go to guiltgracepod.com to give and donate. We have a lot of big plans for 2023 and beyond. and We would love for you to partner and support and build this bridge to confessional reform theology with us. Now, let's get on to this episode. Yeah, I would start with the sermons because that's if mm. you were around in the 17th century, if you were knocking around in 17th century Oxford or Essex and you wanted to meet John Owen, you'd go along to his church, wouldn't you? Uh, or mm. you'd go and hear him preach in the college chapel and you would hear what he was like expounding the word. That's where we start. So that's what I would do. Start mm. with some sermons uh, and then you get the sense of the pastoral heart of the man some of his theological underpinnings, and how he handles the Bible. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, sponsored by Lagos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we're doing a book club episode with Dr. Lee Gatis, and uh, he's the series editor for The Complete Works of John Owen. And uh, so we're going to talk to him about uh, this multiple volume series and the number is pretty large, the volume number. So uh, this will be a good conversation. Um, there's going to be a link to Crossway in our show notes. You can pick up all the volumes. Um, so check that out. There's also an endorsement here on the back of one of them that I have here from a guest that we've had on our show. It's a little tradition I started. I find an endorsement of a guest that we've previously had on our show, and I read the endorsement. So Crawford Gribben. He said, Crossway's landmark edition of Owen makes his work and the scholarly interpretation of its accessible and possible to new readers. This is a project of outstanding ambition and importance. So, yeah, let's. Uh, there's some other information in our show notes, like how to contact us, uh, social media, YouTube, that kind of stuff, normal housekeeping things. If you guys have listened to our show before, you know all those things. So, if you haven't, then uh, just go to our show notes and, and look at it. So, yeah, we'll let Peter further introduce Dr. Lee Gatiss today. Yeah, we've got Dr. the Reverend Dr. Lee Gatiss, and he's been director of Church Society since January 2013. He's married to Carrie, and they have three children. He's read modern history at New College in Oxford. He got his THM at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, went to Cambridge, uh, for 17th century biblical interpretation, which is pretty important for these 40 volumes. Uh, further links and talks about his books, articles, and we're going to link uh, Dr. Lee's website on this as well. Uh, but it's a pleasure having you on to talk about Dr. John Owen, somebody that you spent quite a bit of time in editing his work. Yes, he takes a bit of editing. Particularly yes. if you want to update it into a language that's understanded of the people. Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's Jim, yeah, Packer, it's Jim Packer once said that Owen's um, English reads like the roughly dashed off translation of a piece of thinking done in Ciceronian Latin. 
<laughs> there you go. That's, what a what a what a lifting endorsement of, of Owen's English prose. He can occasionally be a little bit. Um, oh yeah, pro- prolix, verbose, obscure at times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we'll 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 talk we'll talk about some of his uh his uh, English and and how to understand him uh, during this episode. But maybe to. To start off, we've already given you kind of a brief little bio, but maybe if you can let our listeners know a little bit more about yourself, your background, and what you do at Church Society. Oh, thank you. Well, um, I'm uh, an Anglican minister, so ordained in the Church of England, worked in various churches. Um, and then after I'd done my PhD, I took over Church Society, which is a very old, established Anglican evangelical organization <laughs> working within the Church of England with roots back into the early 19th century. Um, And you can tell we're good evangelicals because um, we basically do three things and they all begin with the same letter, like a (laughs) good evangelical sermon. That's right. I like it. We do publishing, politics and patronage. So Hmm. in publishing, we have a magazine, we have a website, we have YouTube, we have our own podcast. Can I mention that on this one? Oh, yeah. We have our own Church Society podcast. Um, There you go. And so we're churning out good material and books and things like that. So one of the recent things we did was a, a new edition of the Anglican homilies. I saw that. Yep. A 16th century text, which I've updated the English and put in all the footnotes. One of the foundational documents, confessional documents of the Church of England. So we huh. publish stuff like that and, and modern stuff too, of course. And um, we do um, politics within the Church of England, involved in all the synods and committees of the church. Yep which is a real joy, as you can imagine, with all the false teaching and heresy we have swirling around. Oh, yeah. It's a nauseating and exhausting necessity. Yeah. 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 Well, didn't Jesus say or somebody where two or three are gathered together, there is church politics? (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, Somebody. Maybe somebody said that. What was it? If you have three (laughs) ministers in the same room, you have four different uh, expectations for church politics. Yeah. And the other P was uh, patronage. So that's not being patronizing, as you would say. Um, mm-hmm. But this funny system in the Church of England where if the um, if the minister uh, dies and goes to glory or just below that, if he's promoted to the bench of bishops or <laughs> if he just moves on and goes to a different parish, then it's the patron's job to appoint the next minister. Uh-huh. And we have that role in huh. 130 or so parishes up and down the country. So we, we try to use that in order to put good people um, into those pulpits uh, mm. to, to reach the darker corners of the land. Oh, I, see. <laughs> I like it. Okay, that's cool. I, yeah, Publishing for... politics patronage, yep. all done prayerfully and in partnership with many others. There you go. Cool. There you go. Awesome. We got the PPP on the GGG show. Probably <laughs> <laughs> before I run out of P's. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a good, like you said, good evangelical alliterative fashion. Exactly. So before we get into the meat of the interview and uh, about this volume series on John Owen, what interested you enough in John Owen to devote? It must be a lot of time and energy if there's 40 volumes into this, you know, project. Uh, relatedly, who can you just introduce the the bare bones? We're not going to just assume uh, everyone knows a lot of details about John Owen. Maybe you introduce him to the audience. Who is John Owen and what makes him stand out both theologically and historically? That's a great question, Nick. Thank you. Thank well, you. John Owen is a 17th century Puritan uh, in, in England, not New England, mm. but old England <laughs> yeah. where I am here in Cambridge, yeah. uh, although he was in the other place in Oxford. So he was a student at Oxford University um, and eventually rose after being a minister for several years to becoming the Dean of the Cathedral in Oxford and Vice-Chancellor of the University. And then uh, everything came crashing down after the fall of Oliver Cromwell. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was basically very close to Oliver Cromwell, a Congregationalist, evangelical guy uh, who was quite keen on the Republic rather than the monarchy. Uh, And then after the monarchy came back, he was in the wilderness um, not literally, but um, uh, he was you know, in exile. He wasn't allowed to be in the church yep. or in the academy anymore. The Puritans were ejected. Yep. Um, and so he had this long period in his life where he was persecuted and not able 
to to function in in the way he had before as a leading light in the nation. Hmm. It was in that period, however, um, that last 20 or so years of his life in which he produced some of his most monumental uh, pieces of writing, a huge multi-volume work on the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. um, a massive two million word long commentary on the book of Hebrews. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Two million words on one book. (laughs) Which is, yeah. Which is Which not enough the, for the book of Hebrews. Yeah. I mean, it makes the commentary th- about two or three times as long as the entire Bible. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, it's the longest commentary on a detached portion of Scripture ever written, I think, huh. so far. So far. That's, yeah. Someone's going to beat so, that sometime soon. Yeah. He, he was um, very keen on toleration as an idea. He wanted um, people like him who were congregationalist independents. Mm-hmm to be tolerated within the country so that they could function and not be persecuted. Um, Yeah, but he starts his life as an Anglican in the Church of England, working in ordinary parishes. He sort of flirted with Presbyterianism for a while. Uh Um, But he found that um, government by committee wasn't really in the Bible. And um, I'm just teasing (laughs) you now. You're supposed to laugh. Uh, (laughs) I'm laughing internally and seething outside. Yeah, you know the three great ways of governing the church, right? There's yep, the yep. personal, the personal and effective way of doing it through bishops. Uh-huh. There's the <laughs> government by committee, which uh-huh. is Presbyterianism. Yep. And then there's democratical anarchy, <laughs> which is what John Owen called congregationalism yep. at right. that point. But then he later was convinced of congregationalism himself uh, by reading a book by John Cotton from New England. Yep. Um, yep. Yep. And, and he became a Congregationalist and the leading light amongst the Congregationalists. He wasn't a Baptist, though. That's I was, that was going to be one of my like, little back-end questions. Like, please settle the debate for us. Was, was Owen a Baptist or Presbyterian? But it seems like that's not the right question to ask. He was. He was confessionally closest to the Anglicans because he loved the 39 articles from the very yeah. beginning of his ministry when he was an Anglican minister to the very end when he's constantly saying 39 articles are doctrinally brilliant. Mm-hmm. The They're glory of the English Reformation, yeah. he said. The glory of the English Reformation. Yeah, They're pretty good. like, uh, in today's terms, non-denominational, or is, or is that acronistic to say? It is anachronistic to say that. We didn't have denominations until... Um, the persecution of the Puritans came to an end in 1689 mm. with the Act of Toleration, and and then you were allowed to be a Baptist or a Presbyterian, a Congregationalist, mm. um, and to, to exist alongside the, the established Church of England. You mm. had to still be Reformed to start yep. off with, which is interesting. Okay. You had to still be in agreement with the doctrinal parts of the 39 Articles. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, hmm. we later dropped that and allowed all kinds of people to start their own churches. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Democratical anarchy, indeed. Yep, yep. Yeah, do whatever you want. Yeah, totally. Um, but we so... didn't chop the king's head off again. So Owen oh. was actually around in that period where uh, the king's head was chopped off and we had a, a republic for a little while. Owen actually preached the sermon to the House of Commons the day after the king was beheaded. Huh. Imagine having that gig. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do I imagine speak to these guys after yeah. he was just killed? Imagine you were asked to, you know, imagine there was a coup on January the 6th or some other dates. And the day <laughs> after you are invited to give a sermon to Congress. I mean, wouldn't that be an awesome yeah. opportunity? That'd be huh. wild. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you say? Yeah. That John the Baptist's head was serving a plate. <laughs> therefore... Your uh, your king's head was served on the plate. He doesn't really mention. He doesn't really talk about what happened yesterday. He's more uh-huh. forward looking um, huh. and looking to the souls of those in front of him rather huh. than anything else. Huh. That's wise. Interesting. <laughs> that probably is the wiser thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And may account for the fact that he survives when the. Um, huh. Not. I was going to say when the king comes back, but of course he didn't come back. Um, they did. They did sew Charles the First's head back on to his body, but that didn't really work. So when they restored the monarchy, they they decided to bring his son back as Charles the Second. And oh. Owen survived. He wasn't uh, bumped off by the new king. Yeah. 
Um, so he was able to go and see the king <clears throat> and to plead for tolerance for the non-conformists and so on. But and he was a leading light amongst non-conformity hmm. in that period. But yeah, a great writer, a great thinker, uh, a preacher who could hold your affections in his hand as he was preaching and turn them this way or that and point you to Christ. Hmm. Um, that's the kind of guy he was. And I think his sermons are probably the best place to start if you're unfamiliar with Owen. Hmm. Get hold of some of his sermons and hmm. read those. We're going to produce a new uh, five-volume set in our series of his sermons. That will be the best edition to get, obviously. Hmm. Um, but they're terrific examples of 17th-century Puritan sermons, very hmm. passionate, biblical, and applied. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So I think some some who might know John Owen <clears throat> um, know that he's been published before and that a lot of these volumes have been published before. Uh, so this is not necessarily new, but what what's what are you what are Crossway doing that might distinguish this series, um, these volumes from what's been done before? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. There, um, there have been editions of Owen before. So he was published first in the 17th century. Obviously, somebody in the beginning of the 18th century tried to start a works of John Owen, but they only managed one volume. Um, <laughs> Then in the 19th century, there was a 21-volume set published at the beginning of the century in the 1820s. And then in the mid-century, someone produced a 24-volume set, someone else, completely different. Mm. So they have been published before in different editions. People yeah. always slightly tweak them when they publish them in different ways. Sometimes things are missed out. Sometimes uh, older texts are used, corrections are made, and that sort of thing. So... Um, what was published in the mid-20th century, back in 1965, was sort of a facsimile or photocopy, really, of that 19th century edition. Mm. So it's been a long, long time, 150 plus years, since a brand new edition of the complete works of Owen was tried. So really, it's time to update the typography. I mean, the look of it. Our edition is much nicer to look oh, at. Gorgeous, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's leather, leather bound here with the yep. bands and the gold lettering. This marble board mm -hmm. uh, inside, it's much nicer to read than uh, the standard nineteenth-century edition as yep. well. Nice margins, good typesetting. We've also added all the footnotes. So Owen quotes from and alludes to a lot of other people, and the previous editions of Owen don't really go into any great detail about who they are. And what, what book is being quoted? Huh. We have done exhaustive work. Well, it certainly was exhausting anyway. I don't think we missed anything out, but it's exhausting work using all the best modern database technology and online books and that kind of thing that wasn't available to previous centuries. And we've tried to note all the sources. So you'll see on, on some pages where Owen quotes a number of people, you know, time and time again, we've got extensive footnotes in here to, to help people chase up the references. Also, we've translated um, Owen's Greek and Hebrew and Latin and put that in the text. We've left the Greek, the Hebrew and the Latin in the footnote. So if you're a scholar and you want to see what exactly what he wrote, which Greek word did he use? Did he mm -hmm. spell the Hebrew correctly? All that's there. Mm -hmm. You can see where Owen misspelled the Hebrew. We've left that in for you, but we've put the corrections. We've put the correct english and we've we put the correct greek somewhere so it's massively up to date headings uh, much better to look at we've also sorted out all his numbering errors i mean you know what the puritans were like right they would preach yeah. 50 point sermons for example <laughs> but it would yeah. be firstly and then sub point one sub point two sub sub point one sub sub point two and then you kind of get lost in the tree of which sub 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 point that we're actually on and so did the editors in the past they got a bit <laughs> lost and and got the numbering wrong so we tried to uh, harmonize that to make it easier to follow there's a lot yeah. of archaic words in owen as well as i said he's yep. quite he can be quite complex um when i was doing my phd work on owen i often found him using a word that had never been used before according to the oxford english dictionary you know he's the first one to use that word uh, um, and usually he's just inventing a new English word by clashing a couple of Latin words together or something like that. So we've noted all that. We don't change the word 
in the text. We don't update the the vocabulary, but we're going to put a footnote in to tell you what it actually means. Ah, okay. That kind of thing. Okay. And also, you know, there's been a huge amount of work done on John Owen, on Reformed theology in that period, on that period of history, over the last, well, definitely over the last 150 years, but in the last 30 years particularly, a huge amount of effort and energy has been expended on this. I think 2022 even was the best ever year for John Owen in terms of publications. I mean, especially, I should mention, of course, this beautiful edition of Daily (laughs) Readings in John Owen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Edited by Lee Gatiss, which you can get from any good bookstop, uh, bookshop. Um, yeah, so lots of things are being published. So why don't we have up-to-date introductions, annotations mm. and everything? So we've collected um, 20 or so of the best Owen scholars around mm. today, and they have written the introductions to these volumes. Mm. Um, yeah, so this one, the introduction was written by Andrew Balich, mm-hmm. uh, who really knows his stuff on 16th, 17th century theology. Um, and we have many others involved as well. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks for that explanation. That helped. Speaking of exhausting work, as you're well aware, the 40 volumes, there's 40 volumes there. And uh, just for the audience to break it down, first, uh, the topic of the Trinity, volumes 1 through 8, then the Gospel, volumes 9 through 14, then the Christian Life, volumes 15 to 28, then Commentary on Hebrews, volumes 29 through 37. And then it rounds it out with Latin works, shorter works, appendices to complete the set. Is there something about the movement and the topics, maybe the order of that um, <clears throat> structure that, you know, uh, that John Owen wrote on that makes this order significant or is it just kind of random? Uh, has Crossway reworked anything or have you kept the original order of publication? Good question. Um, We haven't kept what you might say the original order of publication because Mm. his books were written all the way through his career at different times. And so we have bunched them together into themes. Now, uh, that um, mid-19th century edition edited by Gould uh, also did the same sort of thing. It did bunch things together into groups. And we've generally followed the same sort of groupings to keep those books together, though there are some new things here. And obviously the the sections have been expanded. So what was only two and a bit volumes in Gould of sermons has become a beautiful five-volume chronologically arranged set of his sermons. What was seven volumes on Hebrews is now nine volumes Mm. on Hebrews. And then at the end... There are two particularly unique aspects of our edition, which you won't find anywhere else. Hmm. Uh, One is the Latin works of Owen, which were untranslated by the Banner of Truth set. We've got brand new translations Hmm. of of these things, particularly his book, Theologumina Pantodipa. Yep, yep, yep. Characteristically, a Greek title to a Latin (laughs) work. Um, Now, uh, We've done a brand new, fresh translation of that, uh, which will be published alongside some of his other Latin material, uh, a new edition of his Latin dissertation on divine justice, for Mm. example. So all this is new. And then also some of his shorter works, not just letters and Latin orations to the University of Oxford and uh, some things like that. But um, but also, did you know that John Owen wrote prefaces to other people's books? Hmm. He was the J.I. Packer of his day. As it were, you know. uh, did he actually read all the books that he, yeah, he, he actually would, read all the books that he provided an introduction for? Well, that is the question, isn't it? Did he yeah. realize what he was endorsing? In yep. one book, he does actually say, now, uh, this book is a bit hypothetical universalist for me, and I don't agree with him about limited atonement, but the rest of the book's fine. <laughs> Obviously, he doesn't say it exactly like that because he would say it in 17th century English that would be difficult <laughs> yeah. to decipher. But that is essentially what he says. Uh, so I think he did read the books uh, and his prefaces. We will we'll gather them together and you'll be able to read those in uh, in this book. So it's not chronological, which the daily readings in John Owen are. 
Um, but our edition has, has gathered things together thematically because that's generally thought to be a bit more useful to scholars. All the dates are noted, so if you do want to follow things through chronologically, you can. Hey all, this is Peter, one of the co-hosts of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast with a word from one of our sponsors, our title sponsor at Logos Bible Software. Have you gotten your free book of the month from Logos yet? Join tens of thousands of believers who build their library with a free new digital theological book each and every month. Then read it on the free Logos Bible study app. Logos is the easiest to use, most powerful Bible study tool on the planet. You heard that right, on the planet. It works on mobile, the web, and even has an amazing app for your laptop. I myself use the mobile app every night to read from the Hebrew, the Greek, and a few other resources. I love it. I've used other apps, and this is the best one on the market. It really, truly is. And if you want to go even deeper, you can choose from a vast selection of the top books for in-depth Bible study. There's also step-by-step videos to help you learn how to study the Bible like a pro. So get your free book of the month today. Go to logos.com slash guilt grace and get started with Logos today. We have this link in our show notes. So just open up our podcast, find our show notes, click this link, and you can get started with us with Logos Bible Software. Have you been thinking about going to seminary for a while and wondered, what would a day in the life of a seminarian look like? Westminster Seminary California is hosting their spring seminary for a day on Friday, March 17th, 2023. This is an all-day, community-wide event designed to give you a taste of seminary life, the rigor of Westminster academics, the friendships outside the classroom, living together in the Westminster Village, eating with faculty and staff, and more. Westminster has a special treat for those who attend. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, Vice Chairman of Ligonier Ministries and Chancellor's Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, will be delivering his Robert G. Dendolk Lectures of Preaching at Chapel. You're not going to want to miss this. At Westminster, we think that an in-person visit is the best way to experience our community, classes, and campus. So to that end, they're offering a $400 travel grant to prospective students to help ease the burden of their travel expenses to visit sunny San Diego. Sign up today to attend Westminster Seminary California's Spring Seminary for a Day on Friday, March 17th, 2023. Visit www.wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474 or click on our show notes for direct link to sign up. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Are you a student who's looking to go deeper into classical Protestantism and our theological heritage? What about a pastor who wants some sharpening of his theological, exegetical, and historical toolboxes? Are you a layperson who's looking for theological wisdom? Maybe you're an educator looking to lay a classical foundation in theology. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. And key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. They take full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online classes. Davenant offers an MLIT in classical Protestantism with the standard and pastoral ministry tracks, and a brand new PhD program in partnership with Union Theological College and Dominant Hall supervisors. Yet they insist that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation. So to that end, they host regular residentials at the Dominant House Study Center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountain region of South Carolina. Registration for spring 2023 classes running April to June are now open but registration closes March 29th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Classes include the Reformation in the Modern World, 
a biblical theology of the sexes, Augustine's City of God, and so many more. These classes look incredible. Visit www.davenanthall.com to find out more or www.davenantinstitute.org for more information about the whole organization or go to our show notes and click on the link. That's yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, thanks for providing that explanation. Because I think, yeah, those who've looked at other volumes, uh, my guess is they wonder like, and we'll have a question on this later on. I'm, they don't have to answer it yet, but like, do you read through this chronologically? Is that how he read it, or is that how he wrote it? So I think those are helpful kind of um, uh, stuff, like structural questions around this stuff too. Yeah, yeah. So people's theology develops over time, so it is an interesting yeah, question to true. do that. Mm-hmm. When yep, I, yep. I had a sabbatical uh, a few years ago, and I reread all of Owen in chronological order, because oh, oh. <laughs> I hadn't done that before. I just I'd read him theomasky or bits here and bits there, and 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 put it together that way. But I mean, I read the Hebrews commentary front to back several times. Holy moly! But I read it all again in chronological order in order to 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 do daily readings on it and do those chronologically uh, uh. because you do get a slightly different feel then you hear his voice developing you see the subjects he's interested in at particular times yeah the sermons he preached at significant occasions like when the king was beheaded uh. or after the siege of colchester in the civil war and so on they they sort of snap into a little bit more focus in their historical context so so that can be quite helpful hmm. yeah but a lot of the works i mean if he's written several things on the trinity throughout his life it's quite helpful to put those together for sure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of goes into my next question too. Uh, if someone were to begin reading Owen for the very first time in your advice, would they just begin at volume one of this new works that you did um, and then work the way forward chronologically? Or do you have a suggestion where to start and read? And then second sub question there would be uh, what are personally your three favorite works in this corpus of Owen and why? Wow, those are great questions. Um, now, <laughs> Owen has become sort of famous in some circles because of his book, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Oh, yeah, that's a huge one. Yep. A, a treatise on limited atonement. Yeah, and then J.I. Packer's forward to that a while back. Yeah, exactly. Not everyone's exactly. favorite thing on the planet. Exactly. So uh, Uncle Jim wrote a fantastic introduction to that, which, which has been um, greatly oh, yeah. read. And that individual book has been published as a separate book, but in a number of Yep. I was going to tell so, the audience that was that was what first convinced me of Calvinism on the front okay. end. That was the very first book I read when I became a, uh, I guess, became a Calvinist. Okay. Now I actually don't think people should start with that book. <laughs> yeah. Don't um, be like me because I was I was a nerd. <laughs> I know that lots of people do start there, but sure. I actually wouldn't lead with limited atonement. It wasn't something that absolutely dominated Owen's life and thought. Um, there are plenty of other major yep. themes that he discusses, and I think often if you if you if you don't like limited atonement, you would then stop and you wouldn't read any more of Owen and yeah. you'd be losing out because there's a oh. lot more to him than just that. And why start with something that controversial? Yeah. Uh, maybe. I'm not saying it's a bad book. Um, there are things in it I wouldn't necessarily want to, to go with. But um, yeah, I would start with the sermons because that's if mm. you were around in the 17th century, if you were knocking around in 17th century Oxford or Essex, and you wanted to meet John Owen, you'd go along to his church, wouldn't you? Uh, or mm-hmm. you'd go and hear him preach in the college chapel, and you would hear what he was like expounding the word. That's where we start. So that's what I would do. Start with some sermons, uh, and then you get the sense of the pastoral heart of the man, some of his theological underpinnings, and how he handles the Bible. So that's a great place to start. Then maybe look at some of his biblical exposition, obviously mm-hmm. Hebrews terrific it is long uh, the hebrews <laughs> yeah. commentary it is one of my favorites that's what i spent my time doing as my phd i spent a long time looking at owen on hebrews um but there's some great meaty stuff in there and yeah. take it slowly tight you know every page of it is precious um as some other commentators have said there's plenty there to chew on um the other thing is some of his treatises Um, which started life as sermons on mortification of sin and Mm. indwelling sin Mm. are terrific. Um, He he understands the human heart in a way that few writers today seem to and can just press on exactly what is worrying you or 
dragging you down and can can be a good physician of the mm. soul so those are terrific works the ones on uh being heavenly minded his exposition of psalm 130 which we have in a whole volume is mm. also terrific so some of those things in the christian life mm. section of uh, of our 40 volumes would be terrific then i mean explore some of the meteor theological things on the trinity the holy spirit um and on soteriology of course uh, mm -hmm. he was excellent at that but now, i would start with the sermons and then your three favorite ones and yeah why. if you had to pick dr lee's favorite owen i know that's like saying you have 40 children pick three of them which is your favorite child yes yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> well um, I mean, which ones like affected you the most when you first read them? The exposition of Psalm 130. Okay. Uh, that was a key thing for Owen in his own spiritual walk and life. Uh, he was struggling when he left the University of Oxford as a student. His career as an academic had been cut short um, by Archbishop Lord. Mm -hmm. supposed to boo at that point. yeah boo. yeah i know i know who that is yep uh, yeah he's a bad guy for the puritans yeah we yep. have to boo whenever we hear archbishop lord yep um had kind of cut his career short in oxford and he hardly spoke for three months uh and was you know struggling with despondency and depression hmm. and i think the study of psalm 130 and other things was a great help to him in his own spiritual walk so that one is is quite affecting I think. Um, also, I mean, I, I was deeply affected by reading his commentary on Hebrews because, you know, that I spent a lot of time sucking on that, chewing on that, mm. ruminating on it. Uh, so I would definitely encourage that. But then um, if you want me to pick three, I suppose I have to also go with his little treatise on infant baptism. There you go. That's just because nice. I so I control Pascal Deneau and others who call him John the Baptist Owen when he wasn't a Baptist at all. <laughs> uh, and and that treatise is very clear on that subject. He he was very much um, of a mind that you should baptize your babies. There we and go. Amen. Theology all yep. the way through his life is covenant theology demanded, promoted, and supported infant baptism in his own mind. I mean, that's speaking, what he says. Speaking our language here. Yeah, yeah I like this. You're making that's us good. Presbyterians happy. Yeah. Well, you All see, the wasn't Baptist a Presbyterian. Right now, they listen to this. Owen right. couldn't stand Presbyterians. Let me just say that. <laughs> <laughs> Owen couldn't, really didn't get on with Presbyterians. Presbyterians are the scum of the earth, uh, almost, <laughs> as far as Owen is concerned. So I mean, it's not I wrong. It's amusing yeah, that you like him so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they'd always be right. Didn't yeah. get on. Presbyterians and Congregationalists had ooh, oh, yeah. some difficult <laughs> times in the sixteen forties yeah. and fifties. So he didn't like presbys at all. <laughs> and his covenant theology is a little bit different to what the Westminster Confession says. Yeah, and that's why some Baptists think he's one of them because their covenant uh, theology is also different to the Westminster uh, Confession. Right. But you know, if you're leaving Westminster on a plane. You could be heading towards Louisville, Kentucky, and the Southern Baptist <laughs> Seminary. You could be doing that, or you could be heading somewhere else entirely. So I think he's leaving Westminster, but he's not going to Kentucky. Let's right. say that. Hmm. There you go. Okay. Is so, that right? Are you going to lose lots of subscribers? No, no, I, no. That's that's. He can't, you're making our hearts happy. I mean, he can't that. be perfect. He can't be right all the time. So no, no. Well, no. that's right. I mean, I'm an Anglican, <laughs> and so I disagree with Owen on quite a number of things. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I that's think even you can do that. Presbyterians don't like Presbyterians, so he's yeah. he's he's in the <laughs> same right. boat that we're in. Yeah, I mean, who does right? Who does? And, no, no, and some it, of it, my <laughs> best friends are Presbyterians, and some of my best friends are Baptists. That's okay. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, and you've already we've already kind of joked about this. Um, but Owen's hard to read, and there's always been that joke that we have to translate him into to English when he wrote in English. So he's he's just huh. kind of a harder he's kind of a harder author to to read. Unless so you get I, someone who's modernized it in a nice, easy to read exactly. format. Anyway, sorry. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and I think people wonder, like, is he hard to read because he's not he's not writing to average everyday Christians, or he's writing to academics? Like, who, like, what audience is he writing to? Yeah. And then it depends what book not, you read. Doesn't it? It depends what book you yeah. read. He wrote, he wrote, he must have written, it's about 8 million words Gosh. of stuff. Now, yeah. that's not all highfalutin reformed scholasticism. Yeah. 
Some of it is sermons to ordinary people in the congregation. Some of it is short catechisms that he wrote for teaching children Mm. in his congregations in Essex. So, you know, give the man a break. He wrote and spoke (laughs) for a wide variety of audiences, um, just as you can and I can. So Mm -hmm. if I wrote down what I'm saying to you now, it doesn't really work as a piece of academic prose. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. But it kind of works as a podcast, at least I hope it does. So we can write and speak in different genres and in different tones of voice for different occasions. And Owen could do that too. Uh, So I think some of the complicated stuff that people talk about could be because He's there speaking in the language of the lecture hall to people who know some of the vocabulary and concepts um, and distinctions that are made in scholastic theology, academic theology of the time. But that isn't everything he ever did. He could also speak in the pulpit. In le- some of his letters, for example, oh, are fantastic. He, um, Owen, in his own life, uh, he was married. Um, he had 11 children. Jeez. When his first wife died, Mary, uh-huh. uh, only one of his 11 children was still alive because they'd all almost all died in infancy. Dang. Yeah. And then he, his remaining daughter also died, had a terrible marriage and then had a disease and died. Um, no, that that's a horrendous thing to happen to anybody and obviously had an effect on him. And in one of his letters, he's writing to some friends, people in the congregation that he's pastoring, um, and they've also lost a child. They've lost a child, and he's trying to bring the comfort of the gospel to bear on that situation. And he says in that letter, you know, um, throw yourself on Christ. Christ will be to you more than 10 children Hmm. and if you just think that's a kind of throwaway line that's Hmm. one thing to say but if you realize that owen had actually himself lost 10 children yeah then you realize that he's really he's praising his savior yeah and giving the kind of exactly it's his experience not just a theologian writing something abstract Hmm. um so yeah yeah Hmm. No, that's really helpful because that's, and that goes into my next question because I think some people will judge his language and judge his expositions based off of the more academic writings, but then forget he has a lot more lay level writings too. Because I think some of the famous ones, and we've already talked about the one that kind of affected me the most was the death of death and the death of Christ. He's had the mortification of of sin. Um, he's got his communion with God. He's got his treatise on the Trinity. So he's got a, he's got a bunch of got a bunch of writings. Um, but there's also a lot of other Puritans and people in the 16th, 17th century who wrote a lot, but they're not as like well known as as John Owen. Um, yeah. What do you what do you think has been so durable about his legacy that we still read him, think about him, and in uh, like delight in what he wrote even today? That's a great question. You see, a lot of the other Puritans are a lot easier to understand. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, Which John Flavel. Yeah. yeah, John Flavel like doesn't Owen so much. Yeah, that he's so hard to read. Yeah, at times he is. Um, and so I, if people ask me, where should I start with the Puritans? I may not actually recommend John Owen unless it was to read, you know, some easy to read um, sort extract. Um, I would say John Flavel or someone like that, Thomas yeah. Manton, some yep. of the, the great preachers who are a bit simpler to read the Owen because they weren't necessarily academics or working in an academic environment. You see, we take on some of the tones of voice and ways of speaking of the context that we're in. And yep. Owen was working in Oxford, um, just as I live in Cambridge. And some of Oxford and Cambridge affect the way you speak. So yeah. if you get a Puritan who's somewhere else working in a fishing village on the south coast of England, they're going to preach differently. <clears throat> and sometimes that's more engaging. So some of those other Puritans are well worth reading because they're a lot easier to get into than John Owen. Now, but Owen is um, is a more long-lasting Puritan than many of those because yeah. of the depth of his thinking mm. on some of those big issues to do with the Trinity and the atonement and soteriology, the doctrine of salvation more generally. Um, and his work on those things has lasted. His book on Hebrews has never been out of print since it was written. 
huh. despite being two million words long. Yeah, it seriously. has been seen as you know a terrific piece of work that needs to be kept in print and used. Hmm. Um, so that's why, and also I guess because of who he was. He was chaplain to Oliver Cromwell. Uh, at a key moment, he preached the day after the king had his head chopped off, and then he was the leading nonconformist divine theologian um, in the period when the nonconformists were persecuted and outside of the Church of England, alongside Richard Baxter, who we don't yeah. talk about because he was a dodgy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's got kind of a wonky view of justification. Actually, not wonky. Yeah. He's got a heretical view of justification. He is yeah, wonky, right. but I did just say he's a Presbyterian, so you should have assumed that. That's that was true. Yeah, we're all <laughs> wonky. Yeah, that's we got to take all the wonkiness with us and, and run with it. So that it's because of who he is. It's because of some of his key works, uh, and it's because of the depth of his mm. thinking. Some of it's unique. I mean, a lot of what Owen does is it's brilliant synthesizing. Mm. He's very good at synthesizing the, the reformed doctrinal um, tradition that he's in and applying that in his day and just synthesizing it down. But just occasionally, he will be unique and just come up with an insight that is, whoa, hadn't thought of that before. So his book on communion with the triune God mm -hmm. has this idea that we have distinct and particular fellowship with each person in the Trinity. Communion with the Father in love, communion with the Son in grace, communion mm. with the Spirit in consolation. Mm. And that it's an arresting thought. You've got to put it in proper Trinitarian theological context, mm -hmm. um, inseparable operations and yep. so on. Yep. But yep. actually, that is a, a almost unique in the history of theology. And it's particularly unique in that it's a unique thought that isn't heretical. Lots of people come up with unique thoughts yeah. in the history of theology. Really unique thoughts that generally looked at as, as, as good in theological circles. Exactly. Novelty is not normally good, but this no. is one of those rare things, uh, unique thoughts that is actually, I think, sound and personally spiritually profitable for people. Mm. So that's another reason why Owen is still in print mm. and still yeah. useful and, and yeah, interesting totally. to read. Yep. Uh, last question. I, <clears throat> if, is there something that you would gather no one knows about John Owen that you would think is kind of interesting, maybe fun, maybe not fun, but at least interesting to bring out, to introduce to the audience? Um, okay, a couple of things. Uh, one, I think, although he never went to America, mm -hmm. Because actually um, being transported to his majesty's plantations in Virginia or Maryland was considered one of the worst possible punishments of the time. <laughs> so um, being sent to America is considered a bad thing for many. But although he, um, he never went there, though being offered a pastorate in Boston and possibly the presidency of Harvard, he didn't go. But I oh. think, I think I discovered when doing my research that he might have bought some land in New Hampshire. Huh. And he did once have all his books and possessions packed and put onto a boat during the plague in 1665 in London, mm -hmm. but he didn't go. So I think it's possible. It's one of those what ifs that he might have ended up somewhere in New Hampshire, um, huh. which would have would have been an interesting thing. Um, the other thing is that um, that period was dangerous, staying in old England and not escaping to New England. And so when the um, police who watched him closely and had people, you know, informants listening into his sermons and so on, when they raided his house on one occasion, they didn't find um, confidential documents like you might find in the house of a president or vice president or something. Um, they found six boxes of pistols. <laughs> now, that is a pretty neat arsenal. Yeah. Or personal protection, if that's, that's all it bit. is. Yeah. Unless you're in Texas, of course, in which case that's just that's normal. Know, very small. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but for most people, that's too big to just be for personal protection. So yeah. why was he holding on to six boxes of pistols? <laughs> um, what's going on there? So that's an, I can see why the government might have been watching him now. Huh. What was he planning? Who knows? Huh. Interesting. Do you have a theory of what he was doing or does nobody know? 
Yeah, I think um, I think he's quite close to some leading military figures from the um, from the Republic, and I think he was sort of biding his time, hedging his bets, and um, keeping his powder dry, probably literally, in case they might be needed. So oh. he he submitted to the king when he returned, and he realised that they lost, you know, the great vision for church and state that he had during the 1650s and under Cromwell that had gone. But you never know what might happen. You never know what might occur. There might be some uprising of fifth monarchists um, <laughs> yeah. raiding raiding parliaments and, and throwing everybody out. And then it might be a good time to get the pistols out, hand them over to your uh, military members of the congregation, and let's go. <laughs> let's go. You know, so... I mean, all the, all this kind of stuff that we do see sometimes on our TV screens nowadays might have been possible back in those heady days of the English Revolution. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Another or... what if? I might yeah. write a what if of John Owen another time. <laughs> I, I like it. I like I like ending the, the episode on kind of a, an interesting fun note that people may never have known or have uh, have figured out about. Um, John Owen, but Dr. Gatiss, thank you so much for coming on our show, for your research on John Owen, for talking about John Owen, for editing this humongous series, which I'm sure takes up a ton of your time. Uh, if you guys want to look on YouTube, he's, he's been showing some of, some of his books so one of the John Owen volumes um, is up there. But thank you so much uh, for coming on for our show and, and talking about this and editing and, and helping us kind of wrap our minds around John Owen, all the stuff that he did. My pleasure. It's been great to be with you today. Of course. Yeah, our pleasure. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And if you go to our show notes, as a reminder, there is a link to Patreon and you can find out how to become a bridge builder. Yeah, we've got five different support levels and the levels go from uh, just a, a $5 donation to help keep the lights on and, and get some equipment all the way up to you guys get to be part of our decision-making process for episodes, for content, for authors, for guests, whoever it may be. And you guys get consistent conversations, maybe even since our episodes, the second that we record them, instead of having to wait for episodes to come out. So look at that, see what you want to do as part of that. We have a goal to get about $1,000 a month that's to cover some costs, get some new equipment, and just hire some people as well. And also, if you guys can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on any one of your podcasting platforms, this is the number one way, besides word of mouth, that word gets out about what we're doing. So we hope to see you guys next week. <laughs>